And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 28, one of the classic texts on mission uh, this morning. This is Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, "'All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me.'" Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So also our mission statement is printed here. Anyone take, want to take a stab at it without looking? We've, I've repeated it almost every week. Anyone memorized it by now? Um, in Town Presbyterian Church is a community seeking to embody the historic Christian gospel in the city of Portland. Now, last week, I read you parts of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech that his hope was the hope His hope for justice on the earth was the hope, the hope that came from the Old Testament and from His relationship with God, that God's justice would roll down in the midst of the injustices of the 1960s. And usually I try to mix up my references and quotes and illustrations, but we're going to reference MLK again. And this is his letter from a Birmingham jail. And I'm not going to read it to you, but I just want to reference some of its content and what it was all about. And it's a classic of American literature and letters. So if you haven't read it, you should do so. If you haven't read it in a while, you should read it again. And it's very special to me because I lived in Birmingham for about 13 years. I got married there. Three of our kids were born there. And it's a great town. It really is. But there's no doubt that the specter of racism and segregation still haunts that city. And even so, even knowing that, reading this letter from a Birmingham jail, it's difficult to imagine Dr. Martin Luther King, Reverend King, a peaceful protester, jailed because he was speaking out against the infringement of the rights, civil rights of African Americans. In this letter, he writes it partially to some moderate white pastors, and he calls them out. He calls them out over their criticism of his march, their opposition to what he was doing in Birmingham, that in the midst of racial hatred and segregation and violence, that they would choose to condemn King. Of all the things that they could condemn and be against, they line up against Martin Luther King. And this happened 50 years ago, folks. This is not something in our distant past. Well, he calls these white pastors out, and it had to be offensive. It had to be exposing to them. It had to be challenging to them. Yet in the very same letter, what does he do? He invites them into fellowship He invites them into friendship and onto the side of justice. Now, throughout our study of Matthew, we've seen Jesus challenging very directly the institutions of the status quo that have been oppressing people. And yet, at the same time, He does so remarkably with with open arms, with an invitation to friendship. 
He offers direct and strident challenge, and yet at the same time an invitation to be in relationship with Him. And if we read this passage well, we should be challenged. We should be exposed. If we read it well, we should be offended because of what it says about our autonomy and our authority. But also, to each and every one of us, it should be inviting. It should be exciting. It should be energizing. Because you see a God in this passage who draws you into friendship and gives you an incredible purpose for your life. All that in three verses. We're going to try. So, some of you have been around the church for a while, and you've probably heard many, many sermons on this passage to the point where it's gotten all too familiar and it loses its punch. Well, the punch is often missed for two reasons, because we miss the context and we miss the scope of what Jesus is saying. First of all, the context, the setting. These disciples are recovering in the immediate aftermath of the life, death, and then resurrection of Jesus. And, you know, these men and women haven't run onto the field through the tunnel. They've got the the crowd cheering them. They're pumped up. They're giving high fives to each other. You know, let's do this. Let's get it on. No, they're the fans that are leaving the stadium with their heads hung low because their number one ranked Messiah just lost the title fight and they're despondent. You see, Jesus had claimed to be this long-awaited figure, the Messiah in the Old Testament, the coming one, the one who is going to come and restore the fortunes of Israel. But even more than that, begin a work of renewal that hearkened back to the very beginning chapters of Genesis, where the Bible tells us things begin to spiral into disarray. So, not only a relaunch of the purposes of Israel, but in some still yet mysterious way at that point, he was inaugurating a renewal of creation itself. The scope of Jesus' mission was astounding, literally incredible. It was incredible to the disciples and to many of his followers. He said, I'm coming to restore the hopes of Israel and renew the world. And then he died. Hopes crushed. All their time spent with him, all of the teaching and training that he had given them supposedly for naught. And it doesn't make any sense. But right before the passage that I read to you, female disciples go to the tomb and they find it empty. And they're so surprised, they run to the disciples. After meeting Jesus, Jesus tells them to go to get these other disciples and to go and meet him in Galilee. That's the context of this so-called Great Commission. The future of Jesus' purposes in the world, purposes for coming, is laid upon the shoulders of this confused, befuddled, hesitant, joyous, joyous yet worried because they don't want to get hurt again, band of disciples. Now, what was He doing on the cross? What was He doing in that tomb? It seems so discordant with everything that He said was going to happen. How could that happen through a crucified Messiah? And what was happening in His resurrection? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. 
Well, we have a we have a grapevine in our backyard, and we didn't plant it; we inherited it. And like most other green things in our yard, it doesn't get a whole lot of attention. Um, but it survives; it's a survivor plant. And but so in the winter, it shrivels to almost nothing. It's just this lifeless little root-looking thing, and it feels brittle. It feels like you could just break it in half with your hands. But what happens to it every spring? Every spring, this lifeless root-looking thing grows a few tiny little green shoots. This dead-looking vine begins to look alive again, and it's beautiful, and it's amazing because remember, we're not watering it. So somehow it's stored up enough water down in the ground during the wet season that it can grow these enormous new vines. And it begins to take over our side yard. And it begins to grow over the fence into the yard beside us. And it begins to grow into the trees and get tangled up into the tree next to it. And it grows up and through our lattice work and onto our porch and in our furniture because we don't maintain it. We just let it grow. But that's not the point. The point is how that vine begins to grow out of the tiny little green buds. The dead-looking thing begins to take over our entire side yard and begins to grow and get intertangled into the things around it. Well, Jesus' resurrection is like those green shoots when they first begin to emerge for the first time in spring. You see, in the same way that those green shoots are the restoration of that vine's purpose, Jesus' resurrection is the restoration of the world's purpose and of your purpose. See, Jesus came talking not simply about a pathway to heaven. Follow me and you get to go where I go. You get to leave this planet and you get to go to heaven where things are good. Instead, He came saying that He was the pathway by which heaven came down to you and to the earth. He came preaching from these Old Testament prophets, particularly Isaiah, that spoke of this grand Davidic king who would be bigger and more impressive and more lasting than David, who would rule the whole earth with justice and equity. And you read about a child and a son who will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, whose kingdom will never end. See, Jesus didn't come to just start a new religion or give some insights to your spiritual journey or just to point the way for a few souls to find their way to heaven. Instead, it's quite the opposite. He comes to bring heaven to earth. He comes to be what Celtic Christians call a thin place where heaven and the world intersect and they merge into one. And it starts with just a tiny shoot, a tiny green bud. It starts with Jesus' resurrection. It doesn't look like much, certainly doesn't look like a community that could spread throughout the world. It's just a few little disciples that are confused and worried and concerned about their future. But it's the beginning of a whole new world because He promises that in His resurrection that His life and His healing will begin to grow and flourish in a way that His life takes 
blossom and takes root all over the world. Now, maybe that does sound incredible to you. Incredible. I mean, have you seen the newspapers, Brian? Have you seen what's going on around the world? Newspapers. That's for you that are 50 and over. Have you seen the internet? What's going on on the internet? Well, I don't disagree with you. And in fact, the disciples don't disagree with your incredulity. Matthew says in a very understated way here, do you get this? Some worshiped and some doubted. I bet they did. Sounds a little bit like a gathering at InTown. Some worshiped and some doubted. There's a place for all of us here and wherever we are in our spiritual journey. As I said last week, this is a crazy story. It's a ridiculous story unless, unless it's true. These disciples, this little church gathering here in Galilee was made up of believers and doubters. And it was this sort of community, a community not unlike in town, that was commissioned to be the bearers of God's purposes. Isn't that cool? If you think about it, Matthew could have written whatever. I mean, he wanted to stay true to the history, right? But he could have sanitized it a little bit. He could have emphasized some things. He could have cleaned it up. You know, all these disciples, they were just waiting around praying until Jesus came back to give them the green light. He could have written that, but it wouldn't have been a very compelling story. Instead, these disciples were men and women just like you and I. It was a community much like in town that was commissioned to proclaim the new buds on the vine, to proclaim these new sprouts, these green shoots, new signs of life that Jesus had risen from the dead to give the world a new lease on life. Now, these prophecies that Jesus attached to Himself constantly went back and say, remember what the Old Testament said about the coming one, said about the Messiah, and He claimed to be the one who would carry those prophecies. But they all had near and they all had far implications. They had near implications because in His Passion Week, in His march into Jerusalem, His death, His resurrection were all part of a royal coronation there and then. It was happening as He came in. He was becoming the better David, the king of the world. There were near implications. He was actually inaugurating a new world. But there were far implications because there were far implications to this new world his dominion begins in dying. And the full implications of this rule would only be seen as the church extends itself in mission, in dying in the same way that Jesus did for the world. And it would only finally be concluded in Jesus' ultimate return. You see, it's not simply a message, as Matthew tells us, for all nations. It's not simply a message that is to be taken to the ends of the earth. But the scope of the redemption of Jesus is the ends of the earth. It includes all of the world and all of our daily affairs and all of the things that we do going about our daily lives. That's the hope of Christianity. It's the renewal of all things. And so if you're here considering faith, 
That's Christianity's vision for you, that Jesus would bring life and bring renewal and bring purpose for your life, that you would know definitively, finally, why you were born and why you inhabit space on this planet, that your life would be animated with the hopes of the future, the hope of the renewal of all things. So if you're going to reject Christianity, reject it by actually understanding it. And now you kind of have a sense of the big picture of Christianity and not just a caricature. Okay, so we've been flying around now at 35,000 feet, and we've kind of been flying touch and go on the actual passage. So now I want to draw us down. And don't worry, I'm keeping track of time. We're way over halfway done, so don't worry. Don't panic. But I want to show you three quick things, okay? First of all, the foundation of mission, the structure, and then the promise, okay? The foundation. This is in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see, I'm not making this up about Jesus' claim to be a Davidic, eternal, ultimate king. He's claiming that for himself. He's going to be a king like David, but David only ruled over Israel. Jesus says he reigns over all. And there we have, here we have a big, a huge challenge because he's saying that he is the king and you're not. He is the king and I'm not. Do you get that? It's very direct. It's very strident. It's very challenging. All authority that we have is only secondary, corollary, derivative. That's offensive. That's challenging. I'd rather, we'd rather be in charge, wouldn't we? That's the story of the world. Now, the first half of this verse may be somewhat palatable. All authority in heaven is mine, Jesus says. Okay, well, that that sort of makes sense, Jesus. We'll give you that. All authority in heaven, but no, he says all authority in heaven and on earth. All authority in your life, in your daily affairs. This was the problem, as we said from the very beginning, that we don't like that that the Bible tells the story of why Jesus had to come. And we've all heard it, whether we're Christians or not. There's a serpent and a tree, and there's fruit, and there's temptation, and there's betrayal. And whatever you think about all of that, symbolic or not, or somewhere in between, the basic message of that is that humanity, we have decided that we like things our own way. We want to call the shots. And in so doing, we've messed up the king's kingdom. But friends, the difference about this king and how he's different from David is that he's not a warlike king. He's a dying king. He's a crucified king. He's a forgiving king. The one with all the authority in heaven on earth. The one with the right to come and enforce his will. The one who could come and subordinate you, subjugate you, He comes saying, my life for yours, my riches for your poverty. I will fix this mess that you've made. 
I will renew the world that you vandalized. And wonder of wonders, the ones that despoiled His creation, you and I get recruited to fix it, get recruited to be a part of His saving mission in the world. The one who is most qualified to do it himself has chosen us. And he says, therefore, go. Now, structurally, and we don't have much time here, going, baptizing, and teaching. Notice the therefore. Because he has all authority, because he's the king of the world, because he is at work renewing and redeeming creation, go, get moving, get a move on, church. That's what he's telling his disciples. Don't stand around here. Get moving. I'm entrusting my mission to you. Therefore, go. And you have my authority and my power, and I am working through you. Go. But he doesn't say preach. He doesn't say when. He doesn't say convert people. Because why? That's his job. That's not our job. It's in Jesus' authority that He convicts people of their sin, of their waywardness, and invites them in. Challenge and invitation. That's His job. We're simply the ones who are present relationally with people to pass on that message both through a life lived in hope and through words that are spoken in hope, in friendship, in relationship, not looking down, not manipulative, but in relationship. And that comes out in this word teaching, that it's not a colonial or an imperial word. It's a participatory word that through our lives, through our relationships, that who Jesus is comes through, that we are teaching with our lives and with our tongues about Jesus and His hopes for the world. And in relationship, you share your life, you share your hopes, you share your dreams And Jesus comes out as you share about those things and as you're given a right to speak into people's lives. You see, baptism, one of the other commands, is something that you have to have a willing participant to do. This is not enforcement. This is invitation. Going, baptizing, teaching. So, first of all, we have the foundation, then the structure, and then finally the promise of mission. Because we need a promise. Because this is scary stuff. If you're a Christian here and you're being called right this moment to live in mission for Jesus, and you're not scared, you're not listening, you're not paying attention, or you haven't tried it yet, you're still sitting in the pew. But for those of us who are willing to step out in faith, for churches who are trying to do something significant for their city despite the lack of resources, Jesus says, and He leaves a promise, I will be with you, even to the ends of the age, the ends of the earth. You see, what we have to recognize here is that before any of us are agents of Jesus' mission, we are first the recipients that first He comes to us and He challenges and invites. I will be with you. And you is plural. I will be with you, church, this gathered group of disciples in Galilee. I will be with you. I'm in this with you. Now go. Get going. Join me in mission. 
there's a challenge and an invitation. The challenge is life, friends, is not about you. It's not your party. You have to give up your claims upon life and claims upon your world and claims upon God Himself, but you're invited in. You're invited into friendship, and He says, I will be with you. Now, I'm, I'm not a crier. I've cried once in seven and a half years of preaching here. It happened just a few weeks ago, interestingly enough, but I'm not a crier, but I've been kind of close to tears many times this week as I've been thinking about this passage for each of you and for me and for this church. What would it be like for you, and I want you to think about this, for you individually, what would it be like to have the exquisite joy of participating in mission with Jesus in ways that you could actually identify and hear about? What would it be like for you, think about this right now, a person that you know that you're in relationship with that is hurting, that is burdened, what would it be like for you to be that person that leads them to the fountain of living waters, that leads them to Jesus? If you're married, you've likely had a rehearsal dinner. Certainly, you've been to a rehearsal dinner if you're not married. And at those dinners, the bride and groom are often roasted, most of the times poorly. But you also hear stories of thanksgiving. And what do these people say? You believed in me when no one else did. You stood by me when everyone else left me. You got me through that time when everything was falling apart and I couldn't go on. Well, Jesus tells us that life to come, that heaven will be like a wedding feast. And there, you and I will be swapping stories. What would it be like to sit around that table and hear people say, I did not believe that I was lovable before you befriended me and told me about the love of Jesus? What would it be like to be sitting at that table and hear, I couldn't forgive myself for the things I had done until you walked with me through that terrible time and showed me the forgiveness of Jesus? Or maybe, what would it be like to hear, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you? Friends, let's get going. Let's get moving. There's more to life than paychecks and retirement. Life is too great to miss by spending it on ourselves. Let's give our lives for the life of the world. Let's pray. Lord, what a challenge. We are so busy and caught up in so many different things, many things that are valuable and many things that you've called us to do. But it's so hard to think about taking that extra step to walk across the cul-de-sac to befriend the neighbor that doesn't come out of their door that often. It's challenging to think about spending a little bit extra time down here on a Sunday morning to talk to someone who's hungry, to spend time with someone who is confused about life and needs a friend. It's challenging for us as a church when Oftentimes, we feel like we are just wanting to make it to the end of the month and have our bills paid, to think of 
about mission, to think with vision about what you could do in and through us. Father, I pray that you would help us to think that way. Help us to think as a church big, th- big thoughts and big ideas and grand schemes for how you might be able to use us. And Father, help us as families, help us as individuals to look for the hurting, to look for the needy, to look for the spiritually broken, and to simply hold out a hand of friendship, to be willing to spend time with them, to be willing to speak with them about the hope that we have. And as we come to the table, would you empower us to do just that because you've spoken words of hope over us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to rise and we're going to...